Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. I am so, so excited for this new season of the Health Upgrade Podcast because we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing an entire series dedicated to understanding the autonomic nervous system, understanding the consequences of a non-functional or dysfunctional autonomic nervous system and what we can do about it for so many different conditions that so many people are suffering from. This particular series is going to be for practitioners and biohackers, those who really want to get to know the underlying pathophysiology, the specific reasons for why conditions occur in the first place, understanding the mechanisms of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic, the sympathetic, understanding how dysfunction of that system can lead to significant health struggles and challenges. And I'm honored and excited to be doing this alongside JP Erico, an absolutely wonderful person that I've met over the past few months. He is really quite quite the interesting person to, to speak on this. He's, he's very research-minded, has a very diverse background when it comes to research, very diverse background when it comes to inventing, which we'll get into as we talk a little bit, I guess, uh, about your, your background. And really, his focus is on helping to create health using tools that are available to us and, and allowing our human ingenuity to come out and really create positive change in our health and in the world. So thank you so much, JP, for being here. I'm excited to do this series with you. Thank you for inviting me to participate. I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to be digging into a lot of different topics as we go through the next many episodes. And uh, these topics are going to range anywhere from nervous system disorders to digestive system dysfunction to autonomic nervous system, ways to upgrade it, and ways to elevate the function of the vagus nerve in particular, I think is where our focus is, you and I both. And so we'll dig into those things in particular. But today, I'd love to uh, get into an overview of kind of where some of those big health mysteries lie, and the answers to them living within the autonomic nervous system. And so that's where we can dig in today. Uh, before we jump in, I'd love for you to do maybe a quick intro to yourself uh, and explain to everybody kind of where you came from and, and how you got to speak with me in this wonderful realm of health. Well, it certainly has been a circuitous path. And I think you said it's an eccentric background. That's probably putting it mildly. I grew up in a household with uh, my father being a physician and my mother being a lawyer. So as you can possibly imagine, I was going in two different directions at all times. But I, I quickly gravitated toward engineering and sciences, um, have uh, graduate level degrees in engineering, um, but I also did go to law school, so I didn't abandon that pathway. But the combination of the two, engineering and law, led me into patent law, and I was recruited by another family member who was a physician early out of law school to work with him to develop the next generation of products. In that case, it was in the spine field. Um, and we were very successful and a very inventive group or duo, and we ended up patenting a number of different products and, and they've been very successful in that field. But I was captivated when I was introduced early on 
to the concept of neurostimulation. Um, some of my family members, uh, my uncle's associates were in the field of functional neurosurgery. So they were doing deep brain stimulation for things like Parkinson's disease and essential tremor. And I found it to be absolutely magical, truly magical that they could uh, have a procedure that they could do uh, with a patient awake that would have such a profound benefit and virtually no side effects. And so I was completely mesmerized by the concept of using neuromodulation to treat things. And so that got me interested in the nervous system, in immunology, and ultimately into understanding the autonomic nervous system and how the brain functions, maybe outside the realm of pure consciousness, although consciousness certainly does play a role in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the eclectic path that you've taken to get to where you are. It really goes to show that you followed something that really stuck out as, as the source of, of your attention that, that you really wanted to kind of get to that health piece and really to help people uh, using tools that were available to us. And as our human ingenuity and our, our technology got better and stronger, we were able to affect challenges in our health using these wonderful tools. And so your path was amazing, but it brought you to here. And I think we're honored to have you as uh, part of this, this series going forward. And so today, I think what we want to talk a little bit about is the autonomic nervous system and, and the role of the autonomic nervous system within the body and why so many conditions that we are subject to, that so many people are suffering from on a day-to-day -day basis actually has an answer to the root cause of it or to the function of it and the pathophysiology of it within the autonomic nervous system. And so you kind of mentioned it. I'm going to briefly kind of bring it up. What we do with, with functional medicine is we marry the old world knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the bodily function with new world technology and new world testing to be able to marry the two together and create optimal results and better results for all of our patients for our families and for those that are suffering. So we're applying that in particular to the autonomic nervous system. And before we kind of dig in and, and uh, get there, let's talk a little bit about the autonomic nervous system and, and really what introduced you to the concept there. What was, what was intriguing to you when, when you were introduced to this idea? Well, as I mentioned, the first introduction to neuromodulation and the nervous system for me in a environment where I would potentially be having an impact on it was with looking at functional neurosurgery for things like essential tremor, pain, uh, spinal cord stimulation, et cetera. And uh, I was very interested in participating in the development of that field. Uh, as you mentioned before, I, I have a penchant for answering questions when I can't find an answer that somebody else has already come up with. So one of the things that was interesting to me was the fact that modulating the autonomic nervous system in the area of anaphylactic shock appeared to have a benefit. And more specifically, I, I had been reading some articles in which a group of scientists uh, in Russia had taken dogs and they had sensitized them to basically make them allergic to, in this case, it was egg white or hen albumin. And what they did was they took a group of these dogs that they had sensitized and they severed the vagus nerve. And so they, they were disabling a portion of the autonomic nervous system. And they took these dogs, uh, a group that had 
had the vagus nerve cut and another group that was sensitized, but still had the autonomic nervous system intact. And they exposed them to what would be a very large dose of the allergen. Um, and what happened was unexpectedly was that the animals that had the vagus nerve cut were able to survive the challenge. So they were able to survive when the other dogs had anaphylactic reactions that were ultimately lethal. And so I read this, uh, this work and was, was intrigued. And one thing that another physician had told me years earlier was that anytime anybody cuts a nerve and gains a benefit, there's the alternative option of stimulating the nerve to gain benefit. Mm. And so I looked at this as an opportunity to test the theory and stimulate the vagus nerve instead of cutting it and seeing whether or not we could gain that benefit. And, and a group of us went to Columbia University back in 2006 and worked with some research anesthesiologists and reproduced the same effect simply by stimulating the vagus nerve. So that was really my first entree into looking at how autonomic nervous system modulation might be therapeutically beneficial. I love that. And I love how you mentioned that when you have this question that you don't have an answer to, you have a pension for going and finding that answer for yourself. And it's, it's not just about curiosity, but simply about actually finding the answer to that question. And you physically took on the challenge of testing that theory that if you cut the nerve, it has one effect. If you stimulate the nerve, it'll have the same effect. And it had to do with the vagus nerve, which is really, really quite awesome. And, and as we know, and for those new listeners here, the vagus nerve is, in my opinion, the most important nerve when it comes to thriving and allowing for us to have an optimal healthy pattern within our lives. And the vagus nerve dictates or, or mediates, excuse me, the, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the portion of the autonomic nervous system focused primarily on resting, digesting, and recovery and of the immune system management of the digestive system, management of the detoxification system, and sending information from all of the organs within our body back up to the brain. This is a really, really important nerve. I wrote a whole book on the topic. JP has actually written multiple chapters on these topics and, and topics associated with the uh, vagus nerve, and obviously has completed many research studies as well. And so Let's talk about what that path led to for you. Once you started doing the neuromodulation and you were able to decrease the effects of these anaphylactic shocks in, in dogs using simply neuromodulation, what did that then lead to in terms of the next steps or the ideas on how to use that tool to support other conditions or challenges? Yes. So one of the things that I have to admit up front is that we weren't the first people to look at vagus nerve stimulation as a potential way of treating conditions. Very early on in really back in the mists of time, if you will, it was understood by healers and medicine men, et cetera, that doing what was called a deep carotid massage, that is basically taking your thumb, digging it into the patient's neck and rubbing the carotid artery had beneficial effects for treating a number of different conditions, including a condition called supraventricular tachycardia, as well as status epilepticus. That's an epileptic seizure that is sort of uh, not resolving on its own. And so it was understood that this, this technique was potentially therapeutically beneficial. Um, back in the 1880s, there was a physician out of upstate New York. I believe he was actually a member of the Corning Glass family, 
But uh, Dr. Corning uh, in the 1880s recognized sort of with the fledgling understanding of the, of the nervous system and, and how electricity could be used to stimulate it, that it probably wasn't the actual carotid artery that was being stimulated in a deep carotid massage, but in fact, it was the vagus nerve that runs inside the, the sheath that contains the carotid artery, and that it was the physical touching of this nerve that was actually having the beneficial effects. And so he postulated what he called an electrocompressor. So he didn't completely abandon the idea of actually physically rubbing the nerve, but uh, he was the first to sort of come up with the idea of using electricity to activate uh, the beneficial effects. And so fortunately for us who've been in the field more recently and tried to make our way there, electrical engineering wasn't actually up to the, up to the task at the time. And so uh, even though he did get a patent for it, it, it wasn't something that became uh, a readily available product in the area. But through the 1920s and 1950s, and even into the early 1980s, a lot of research was done trying to understand what electrical stimulation in various different ways of the vagus nerve, what, what benefits it would have. And so in the 1980s, a company out of Texas was started that developed an implanted device used to treat epilepsy. And so they were really the first people to come to the marketplace with a product that stimulated the vagus nerve. And, and they've been relatively successful treating epilepsy. As I mentioned, my interest was in treating anaphylactic shock. And I also recognized that the vagus nerve stimulator for epilepsy was, was also being pushed uh, into the treatment of depression. And I was aware that, that there were a lot of other observations that were coming out of the actual clinical use of vagus nerve stimulation that seemed very different. Epilepsy seems very different from depression, which seems very different from anaphylactic shock. And we were seeing results also in asthma. And so our, our experiences began to be so widespread that it made me wonder whether or not there was something more fundamental going on. And so sort of bringing this back around to the question that you asked, you know, how does, this, how does the autonomic nervous system play into all this? It's, it's really remarkable how we as, as intelligent creatures think of the things that we've done, you know, jet travel, developing the internet, you know, Netflix, all of these things that we've done that, that demonstrate our cognitive abilities. That's just a tiny, tiny fraction of what it is that our nervous system is really doing on a daily basis. And, and far more fundamental things like our mood, how well we're sleeping, how well we're thriving, even frankly, who we're, we're attracted to and how we're feeling with pain and, and excitement, all of those things are controlled by our autonomic nervous system. And so understanding how modulation of that might impact a wide variety of different things starts to be a more believable thing. Once you get into the science, and we will in, in depth, it becomes a lot, a lot more understandable. But I wanted to say one last thing about something you said earlier about how we are marrying sort of old world understanding of health with new world science and, and giving credence to it. The classic example is, you know, the, the old grandmother who says when you're not feeling well that you need chicken soup. And of course, we all, we all know, we've all been fed chicken noodle soup when we've, when we've been sick by our moms. And the truth is, until recently, it wasn't really understood what, what, what it was in chicken broth 
that has such therapeutic benefits, but there's true scientific work. I mean, really breakthrough understanding of the various different constituent molecules in chicken broth and chicken fat and understanding how it affects the digestive system and the endothelial lining of the gut and maintaining that barrier that allows our immune system to control the flow of sort of foreign matter through our bodies. And um, so understanding and, and respecting what's been done in the past and adding the scientific understanding and maybe even taking that scientific understanding and extending it for even, even better therapeutic purposes is something that I'm very excited about. I love it. I think it's, it's such an important way for us to understand that not all of the things that were going on in the past were like hokey, that we have actual scientific reasons for why they were happening, even though we didn't have them lined up in answers, that there are answers to uh, our health struggles that we're currently dealing with that are rooted in the past. And I think that's a perfect segue to talk a little bit about the current status and the current state of health in the modern Western world, where we're living, where we're dealing with uh, significant chronic health struggles, dealing from anywhere from anxiety and depression in the mental health realm to IBS, autoimmune conditions like Crohn's and colitis, brain-based neurological conditions like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And we're, we're dealing with so many of these chronic conditions that weren't truly a problem 50, 100, 150, 200 years ago. And let's talk a little bit about what's going on day to day that, that are leading to these challenges in the modern Western world. Yeah, you've really hit on a, on a, a large topic here. And I'm going to start off by telling a story from the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. There was a patient who arrived at Philadelphia, I think Philadelphia General Hospital, um, who had uh, lung cancer. And the physician who was treating that patient called in all of the residents and all of the other faculty members into the theater to see this case, saying that it was a very, very rare condition and it was unlikely that any of them would ever see another patient with lung cancer again in their lives. Now, I mean, <laughs> we live with lung cancer being one of the leading cancer killers in the United States today. Obviously, human beings haven't changed. Now we can, we can chalk up some of the differences to the fact that we're detecting things earlier. Lung cancer is one of those types of cancers that um, oftentimes doesn't present with symptoms until very late uh, in the progression of the disease. But there's no question that environmental things like smoking and, and various different pollutions and toxins have greatly amplified the number of cases of lung cancer that exist. Uh, and, and so our environment can have a great effect on it. Now, more to the point of the autonomic nervous system, there's much that goes on in the Western world that's, that's wonderful. I mean, obviously Western medicine has, has created unbelievable treatments and vaccines for, for various different illnesses that have allowed human beings to live better, longer, more healthful lives. But at the same time, the Western style of life, which is more sedentary, it involves lots of screen time uh, with all of our electric lights and screen time. We're spending more time awake and not sleeping with the typical wake cycle that we would have in a more agrarian society. Um, we're not eating healthfully. You know, I, I, I 
doubt that most people even listening to this podcast who are interested in their health are eating the number of servings of vegetables and, and fruits that they should be um, and that they are relying on fast foods and other things. And of course, you know, large companies are injecting into our foods lots of things to make it a more profitable enterprise. And so all of these different things that are part of our Western comfortable lifestyle are in fact not things that our body is designed to, not to take on uh, in small quantities, but take on in the quantities that we are living with now. And so the one of the areas that that's hurting is our autonomic nervous system. And as a result, we're experiencing an epidemic, frankly, of diseases ranging from fibromyalgia to asthma, to migraines, to depression and anxiety, um, and the autoimmune diseases that you were talking about, as well as you know heart disease and, and other things that are really very new. I mean, the human body hasn't changed in very much in 10,000 years. And yet the diseases that we're experiencing now are wholly different from what people dealt with 100 to 150 years ago. And frankly, are very different from the diseases that are the problems of the what we call the third world. You know, Not a lot of fibromyalgia patients in Africa, not a lot of fibromyalgia patients in India. The, the problems that they have are obviously infectious diseases that we have a handle on, but they're not experiencing these other diseases because they don't have the same Western uh, societal influences on their lives that are disrupting their autonomic nervous systems. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And, and I like to call it the convenience lifestyle that we live in, right? We can literally on our phone, sit on the couch, decide what we want to eat, have it delivered to us. Within a half hour, we've got a calorically dense, nutrient-poor meal that arrives at our house and we can sit there while watching the game on TV and not move basically a muscle through multiple hours and have everything done for us in this convenience mindset. And who knows what's being kind of brought into our, our lives with regards to what we're eating, right? We, we know that there's a ton of stuff you mentioned injected. I'll add on that things are being sprayed on our foods. Food is so heavily processed right now that it's also adding to the burden on our digestive tract, our, on our intestinal system. And we know and this is something that's been there, old world knowledge again, Hippocrates said, all disease begins in the gut, that we need to address that gut function and ensure that it is optimal in order for us to experience optimal health. And so let's dig a little bit into the diet. Not, not a whole lot. We don't need to get into the, the diet culture side of things, but let's speak a little bit about some of the challenges that we're experiencing right now, things that are leading to the asthma, the uh, allergies, the uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity epidemic that we're experiencing right now? Sure. So the gut is a very complex organ, if you will, a set of organs. Yes. And the processing of food begins even as we take food into our mouths. Uh, the presence of sugar, the presence of fats, uh, even in our, in our mouths, triggers the beginning of the digestive system uh, working. In fact, uh, you know, as an aside, there are high-level clinical studies looking at chewing gum as a way to start the, the gut moving after surgery. 
people who have surgery need to get their, their gut moving as, as one of the prerequisites for being released from the hospital. And they're using chewing gum because chewing gum has enough of a trigger in the mouth to begin the entire intestinal tract uh, moving. So uh, as you take food into your mouth and you start to chew it, your, your brain is already receiving signals that tell it what are the constituents of that meal, what molecular parts are in that food. And so as those, that material comes down through the esophagus into the stomach, the stomach is prepared to receive it. Most of our digestion actually happens after it leaves the stomach and, or the mouth and the stomach and goes into the intestines where a large portion of the nutrient extraction and frankly, even additional nutrient creation is, is taken on by uh, the trillions of microbes that exist in our gut. And it's not simply you know, one type, it's, it's, it's literally hundreds or thousands of different types and where they're located in the gut is different. So the, the microbes that are existing in just below your stomach, just below the antrum, in the, you know, in, in the top of your intestines are very different from the ones that exist farther down. And of course, that's non-self. And so it's very important that as the food moves through your, your, your intestines, that the barrier that exists between um, what's really not a sterile environment at all because yeah. of all these other life forms that are existing inside you and the rest of your body has to remain in shape. It has to remain impervious to penetration by those bacteria. And so if you're not providing your gut with the proper nutrients and the proper materials, uh, certain types of fats are ideal like butyrate, that if you're not providing that, then that lining will break down and you end up with, uh, I'm sure many people listening to this will have heard of leaky gut syndrome. And that's an example of your immune system, the endothelial lining, your diet, all working together in, in a negative way to lead you to experience symptoms that you may not necessarily immediately associate with a gut problem, but joint pain, mood problems, sleep problems, cardiac problems, all of these things can arise as a result of that, what's called dysbiosis, um, sort of a, a dysfunction of the biome in your stomach and your intestines. So yeah, it's a critical part of your, your entire healthful state. Yeah, no question about it. And I want to just elaborate really briefly on that. Most recent research is showing that we have between 40 to 60 trillion human cells in our entire body and over 100 trillion bacterial cells just within the lumen of our large intestine. That just goes to show how important that microbiome truly is that bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, worms, everything that's living within our gut and the interaction between us and them is so, so important. It needs to be a symbiotic relationship. If we're feeding it with convenient food that's high in sugar, heavily processed, low quality fats, low quality oils, things like that, then we're actually feeding the bad bacteria. We're feeding the dysbiotic bacteria, the ones that we don't want there, the ones that are going to create dysbiosis, and they're going to be triggered to grow and uh, expand and proliferate to the point where they start to create lipopolysaccharides, endotoxins that come in and actually break down our gut lining. And so that is such an important relationship that we need to have in our current 
standard American diet that we have here in North America is absolutely contributing to that entire process occurring more and more, which is exactly why the parallel between economic progression and the prevalence of medical conditions, these chronic gut-based or gut-root-cause-based health conditions truly begins as, as economic progression increases. So it's a really interesting parallel there. Yeah, I think the term affluenza has been created, maybe for different reasons or different definitions, but I like to use it because it is this, this progression economically that leads to higher levels of, of conditions like type 2 diabetes, functional disorders of the GI tract, depression and anxiety, et cetera. You know, one of the things that is so critical about that microbiome and having really good bacteria in there is that those bacteria produce a very large number or amounts of our neurotransmitters, things like serotonin. 90% of the serotonin, which we all think of as sort of the happiness neurotransmitter, is actually generated in the gut. Now, the brain creates its own, um, but that level of serotonin is disrupted by uh, inflammatory media and inflammatory triggers, uh, both in the gut as well as in the central nervous system. And my personal experiences tell me that there's something fundamentally different between pleasure and happiness. And so we've talked about serotonin as sort of the happiness, content feeling that you get when you have high levels of serotonin. And yet sugar and sugary foods aren't giving us happiness. They're giving us pleasure. And pleasure is something that is addictive. So you know, bringing this back to the discussion of what our foods we eat, if we're constantly pursuing foods that give us pleasure, things like sugary treats and fatty treats and salty, greasy things that we call comfort foods, they're not really comfortable. They're, they're almost like a, an addictive pleasure drug. Yes. And what we need to do is focus on other foods that may not give us instantaneous dopamine bursts of pleasure, but make us happier and in the long run, make us content. And so if you have that ability to think about what you're eating and, and say, do I want momentary pleasure that's going to lead to long-term problems and less happiness? Or do I want to eat things that will make me happier and more content and less needy then I think you'll, you'll start to make better decisions as to what you're eating. I think that's such an important distinction to understand the difference between pleasure and happiness. The things that drive pleasure do not necessarily drive happiness. And that immediate burst of dopamine and serotonin that we get when we have those quote unquote, and I'm doing it in air quotes for those who are listening on audio, pleasure-based foods, the things that are going to drive that dopamine reaction, that serotonin reaction, in the, in the short term often do lead to those dysbiosis type issues, which lead to less happiness in the longer term. So I do very much think that that distinction is an important one to bring up and to be aware of. And I think that's a great place to kind of lead into understanding the connection between the gut and the entire nervous system. The idea that we have a connecting point and more nerve endings within our gut lining than we do even within our central nervous system, within our brain. Uh, this is an important piece of the puzzle. The vagus nerve, as we, you and I know, and I'm sure many of the listeners know, 
is that physical connecting point between our two brains, our central nervous system brain in our head and the enteric nervous system within our gut. And so understanding that what we experience going on within the gut, what we have going on with regards to neurotransmitter production in the gut lining through serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA, all the production of those neurotransmitters, we have this connecting point through the vagus nerve that then connects up to the central nervous system. So let's speak a little bit about at the most basic levels, understanding the, the central nervous system and its impact through the vagus nerve to the gut enteric nervous system. Sure. The axis that you're speaking of, I think me, people may, uh, may recognize this term, the brain-gut axis or the gut-brain axis is really the connection between, as you said, your digestive tract, but also the rest of the organs in your chest and abdomen. The vagus nerve is about 80% a sensory nerve that's actually bringing information up into your brain. It enters into your brain at the nucleus tractus solitarius, which is a, a structure in the very base of your brain, two elongate structures that sit in the base of your brain. And from there, the vagus nerve uh, spreads out and goes into uh, some very critical structures in your brainstem that include the locus ceruleus, which is uh, a small little nucleus of about 50,000 neurons. It's very small, but it has the largest and most wide reaching projections into the entire brain. Um, it is the only source of norepinephrine in your brain, and uh, it releases that norepinephrine both synaptically, so at synapses, but it also has along its uh, axons varicosities, which sort of release norepinephrine all the time. Mm -hmm. So it provides sort of a baseline level of norepinephrine in your brain. Um, another area that is connected to the vagus nerve is called the nucleus bacillus of Maynard. And that is a primary, if not the only source of acetylcholine in your brain. So very much like the locus ceruleus being the source of norepinephrine, the nucleus bacillus is a primary source um, or a critical source of acetylcholine. And the reason that I bring up those two uh, centers is because norepinephrine and acetylcholine are critical components or critical messengers within the central nervous system, but also communicate and control uh, critical components of your immune system. And so, you know, we talk about making certain you have the right neurotransmitters in the gut, but that information that's, that's being sent up into the central nervous system from your stomach, your intestines, your digestive tract, your liver, your pancreas, your kidneys, your, I mean, all of these, all these organs are sending information up really millisecond by millisecond into the brain to provide information that needs to be processed. Think of it as your, as your internal eye, if you will. It's, it's really another sense. Um, we have uh, the sense of vision, sense of hearing, sense of smell, taste, touch, but we also have a sense of our own well-being. When you wake up in the morning, you know whether or not you got a good night's sleep or not, not because you look at the clock, but the moment you wake up and you open your eyes, you know whether or not you had a good night's sleep because your body's telling you. If you haven't eaten, your body's telling you you're hungry. If you're, if you're nervous about to go on stage and you're having butterflies in your stomach, that is a function of your autonomic nervous system and your brain talking to one another to give you a sense about your body and about your, your experiences. Um, in fact, there's a theory that all of your stress responses are actually first experienced by your body and that your body 
tells your brain how to have an emotional response to it. It happens, for example, this is a great study that was done. They took uh, mice. And what they showed was that if you took a picture of a cat and you showed it to a mouse, it would have your typical autonomic response, heart rate elevated, breathing elevated. It would scurry away because a picture of a cat is a threat to it. If you cut the vagus nerve in that animal, it will still run away because it cognitively knows that that's the right move. But it does it more slowly and it does it without the autonomic nervous system response. And so what they've deduced from that, and obviously additional work, what they deduced was that the mouse is seeing the picture of the cat. That information is being processed cognitively, but that cognitive response then leads to a physical response. And the physical response then sends the information back up into the brain where the emotional response happens. And so that heart rate being elevated and the, and the blood pressure and the, and the respiration rate, all of those things change, not as a direct response in the brain only, but it has to include the body. And the vagus nerve is a critical component of that connection between the body and the brain. That's a really interesting study. And it, it goes to show that, yeah, you can use your, your cognitive abilities to function, but often for your survival, the autonomic nervous system is, is kind of built as this survival mechanism tool through the signaling that you're getting initially, which is, which is going to stimulate the effect more, more actively and more, I guess, to an elevated level, right? It's, it's more of an exponential reaction. We have a visceral response to something. Right, yeah. It's in our language. We talk about things like going with your gut. Yeah, or we gut feelings. About, about taking a, having a gut feeling. We talk about taking a deep breath. Now, why do we say take a deep breath? We say take a deep breath because the lungs are lined with stretch receptors. And so when you take a deep breath, you are actually activating the fibers of the vagus nerve that innervate the lungs and sending information back up into the brain. Now, what does the brain do with that information? It relaxes you. So yeah. stimulation of the vagus nerve, we already know. I mean, and it's been known for thousands of years. The, the prana breathing techniques of, of yoga are classic examples of ways in which we can stimulate the vagus nerve and have the benefits of vagus nerve stimulation simply by doing things that are, you know, take time, they take time and they, and they take techniques being built up, et cetera. But these are just many of the ways in which we can modulate our own autonomic nervous system without needing exogenous tools to do it. Now, that doesn't mean that those tools aren't valuable and can't really benefit in a, in a, in a society where it's difficult to break out the time to do those things. Exactly. But, uh, but it's in our own language. It is. It absolutely is. And I'm all about the breath and using the breath to help modulate the autonomic nervous system. And so this is an important piece of the puzzle. The stress receptors are stretch receptors within the lungs being one piece of that. And then in addition to that, as we use our diaphragm to actually allow for the breath to become more of a diaphragmatic, deeper breath, we're actually creating motion within the vagus nerve physical structure that goes down to the digestive system, to the abdominal organs, and creating a motion pattern within those abdominal organs. There's a really great video, I'm going to link it in the show notes here, uh, that shows 
an actual motion pattern of almost like a massaging effect to the organs below, which is stimulating to that vagus nerve saying we're in this calm zone, we're in this state where rest and digestion can occur. So we allow for that digestive system function to be elevated and signal back to the brain through those 80% fibers that are sending signals to the brain from all of those organs saying, yes, we are in a calm zone. So yes, you, you kind of mentioned when you're getting up on stage, you've got these butterflies. I just actually spoke in Florida, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I needed to take those deep breaths. I actually did do a little bit of stimulation, which we'll talk about later. But that helps me get into a calm zone and not feel those butterflies so I can get up on stage and do a really good job explaining to people about the vagus nerve in particular, which is really quite awesome. So just a fun little side note. And I think what I want to lead into here is, is we've kind of done a very basic overview of that gut-brain axis. I want to talk a little bit about what most people, when they think of the brain or the enteric nervous system, we tend to think of the neurons. And yes, there are 86 billion neurons within our body and the brain particularly, but there's so many other cells. To some people's uh, knowledge, it's up to 10 times the number of other cells that are involved that support the function of these neurons. And these are the immune cells in particular, the microglia, the dendritic cells, the astrocytes. And I would love for you to kind of dig into a little bit about that and the autonomic nervous system function that is involved in maintaining the function of those cells. Sure, you're, you're touching on something that's really near and dear to me um, because uh, one of the ways that I view our bodies is that we have three forms of immune health, if you will, or immune systems. We have an innate immune system which I think is sort of the most primitive, if you will. It's the immune system that responds without needing to learn anything. It's sort of baked in. It's sort of our reptilian immune system, if you will. And then you have, beyond that, you have your adaptive immune system. And your adaptive immune system is your antibodies and your T cells that have to learn. Um, it's why we get vaccinated. We get, we get uh, vaccines that teach our bodies how to attack something that we haven't actually experienced yet. But the, the third stage of, your, of that immune sort of hierarchy is our central nervous system. Our nervous system allows us, I, I view it as our proactive immune system. You have your innate immune system, your adaptive immune system, and your proactive immune system. Your proactive immune system learns what things are dangerous or understands that certain things will cause us injury and we avoid them. We have the ability to see them and avoid them. Um, and so our central nervous system has that component of being an, a part of our immune system. I mean, the reason for having a central nervous system is to survive and thrive. So we have that as, as part of our immune system. And as you rightly pointed out, the brain is comprised of a variety of different cell types. Um, we do, again, think of neurons as being the most important ones, because they're the ones that send signals back and forth to one another. They were, the, they were the first ones to be recognized. In fact, the term glia actually comes from the word for glue. So it was originally thought that it was just those cells were just there to, to glue the neurons together. But it's, it's so much more than that. And I think any time, just as, a, as a, a way of thinking about things, Anytime any cell type in our body or any function of a cell type is considered to be sort of 
oh, a throwaway. It's not really all that important. Just immediately disregard that because it wouldn't have survived for the billions of years of evolution if it didn't have a really important purpose. And so, uh, as you point out, the, the, the glia uh, in our brains, the, the, the astrocytes, dendritic cells, and, and most importantly, microglial cells, which are actually of a different origin, are critically important to how our brain functions. I like to think of it as, as a, our brains being wet wired. It's not exactly like a computer, but think about how differently your computer would function if it was sitting in a bath of oil or a bath of salt water versus in air. It just functions very differently. So my understanding of how the brain functions, which comes from lots of research, is a little different from the way the general population thinks of, of, of how brains work. I think of the brain as being really constructed by microglial cells, which migrate into the brain as it's developing on day seven yeah. of gestation. And so uh, at this point, I think it's, and we'll spend more time talking about this, but microglial cells are actually the architects of the brain. They, they, they literally control which cells live and die, which cells are connected to which cells, which, which synapses uh, get to thrive and which ones have to be engulfed and, and destroyed, which tracks get, get myelinated, even where the vasculature grows into the brain. Yeah. So the microglial cells uh, are critically important and they're immune cells. So yeah. I think of the brain as being uh, the most immune-based organ in our bodies. So I'm sure we'll have lots of opportunity to talk more about that as we go forward. But it's critically important to understand also that neurons have not only neurotransmitter receptors on them, but they have cytokine receptors. Cytokines being the molecules that are typically considered the communication messengers of the immune system. But even more importantly, immune cells have neurotransmitter receptors on them. And so we have this interplay between these two cell types. I really don't think of them as two different systems. They're really two parts of one system. It's your neuroimmune system. Yeah, and that's such an important piece to what we're gonna talk about throughout this entire series. It, it really comes down to these systems are not separate from one another. They are absolutely intertwined with one another. It's the reason why when you mention that certain synapses are allowed to uh, progress and thrive and become stronger where others are gonna be like literally pruned and, and cut off. That's how neuroplasticity works. That's how we can create more strong neural connections in certain pathways and you utilize that for neuroplasticity even later in life. And so this is an important piece of the puzzle. And then the unfortunate situation with how conventional kind of medicine has, has gone is we've separated the body into different parts. We've got neurologists, we've got oncologists, we've got hematologists, we've got respirologists, we've got gastroenterologists, and none of these people talk to one another. And what the vagus nerve does is literally talk to all of these different pieces. It's literally the intertwining and the connecting point for all of those different systems, quote unquote, that create an, an, a single person, right? We're, we're more than just the sum of our parts. And this is where that connecting point occurs is that there are literally receptors for neurotransmitters on immune cells. And there's literally immune cytokine receptors on neurons and on neural glial cells and, and astrocytes and, and on dendritic cells. So that interplay is so important and that connecting point is so important. It's part of the reason how the vagus nerve can control inflammation because we've got the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors 
BA7 or alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor sitting on macrophages that helps to shut down the production of inflammatory cytokines in the gut, in the spleen, et cetera. That's such an important interplay, such an important piece to the puzzle, something that we'll talk a lot more about over the next many episodes as well. Yeah, I, I, I view the, the vagus nerve and the brain sort of as a conductor of a symphony. Yes, your violins sit on one, uh, one section, your horns sit on another section, the percussion sits on another section. It would just sound like a disaster if they weren't working together harmoniously. I mean, the, the whole word harmoniously comes from the idea of a symphony and, and harmony. And, and the vagus nerve helps us to keep all the systems functioning in the same, in, in the same realm, this rest and digest and restore mode versus you know, fight or flight. You can't really have your heart and lungs in fight or flight mode while you're trying to digest and you know, create glycogen in your liver, et cetera. So what you end up with is a, a system that really works together harmoniously in, and what I sort of describe as certain modes in engineering, if you have a system of many different components, they may, if they're functioning correctly, may sort of center on certain nodes. Um, so you have sort of the sleep node, you have the digest node, you have the activity node, you have, so, so all of your organs and all of the functions of your body have to sort of center on one purpose. And, and then focus its, their, their efforts to sort of harmoniously work together to make that function properly. So the vagus nerve is sort of the, the connector that brings all that information up into your brainstem, which acts like that conductor. And there's ways, there's ways that the vagus nerve um, and your autonomic nervous system can end up confusing that conductor. And, and that's something that we'll talk a lot about, especially in, in the context of somatoform disorders, things like depression and, and gastroenterological problems that aren't necessarily things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, but things more like you know, IBS, in, irritable bowel syndrome versus inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about it in, in the context of migraine headaches, and we'll talk about it in the context of chronic fatigue. All of these things are likely have at least a component of them in which their symptoms are being perpetuated because the communication between the body and the brain and the brain stem are, I'm going to say confused, but could be disrupted or could have been trained to experience those symptoms, even though they're not, they're not appropriate. And fortunately, there are ways to change that. And we're only now learning how to do that because our focus on pain peripherally may really not, our focus shouldn't be on treating peripherally, even though that's where the symptoms are. And you're right. Unfortunately, in Western medicine, we have this, this view of every organ sort of functions independently. And you go to see a gastroenterologist. And when you complain to the gastroenterologist about your sleep difficulties or your headaches, the gastroenterologist doesn't want to hear about it. He wants to send you to a neurologist. And when the neurologist hears that you have, you know, knee pain and shoulder pain and joint issues, he doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to send you to a rheumatologist. I, I experienced this. I actually had the opportunity to speak to uh, the, the head of the Royal College of GPs, general practitioners in the UK. 
Um, and she had, she had a funny line. She referred to all of these people who focus only on one organ that we call specialists. She calls them partialists, people who <laughs> only understand a part of the body. So, and that's, and that's not to take a shot at, at people who've, who've, who've specialized because obviously there's an important, important thing to do, but it is a perspective that's kind of interesting. I absolutely love that. It's that's going to stick with me forever. <laughs> they have specialized in a part of the body, uh, exactly. a particular part, and are not willing to communicate with others, which is unfortunate. We actually had uh, an experience. Sorry for interrupting, but we had an experience that was along those lines. We were working with a gastroenterologist, a wonderful uh, gastroenterologist over in the UK, and I was talking with him, and I said, you know. I think we can help some of your patients, but we really want to find out how many of them are also experiencing headaches. And he said, well, I have no idea. There's you know, no real connection between headaches and, <laughs> and gastroenterological problems. And I said, well, I think you should probably ask. And he came back to me two weeks later and he said, I'm absolutely horrified that I didn't realize this, but I began asking my patients who came to, he, he was at a tertiary center helping you know, patients who had sort of exhausted all other opportunities. And when he spoke with them, he said, he found that more than 50% of them were not only just experiencing severe headache problems, that they actually, when they came to his center, which was on the eighth floor of the, of the building, that they had either just come from or were just going to the 11th floor where the headache specialists were. So he had no idea because he had never asked. And so we'll spend a lot of time talking about the, the crossover between various different indications. And, and when people suffer with one problem, they very often also suffer with other problems and other symptoms that would not typically and traditionally be linked together. But we are now realizing there is an underlying problem yeah. and it is an autonomic nervous system problem that links these things together. And when you actually speak to the patients, they say to you things like, how did you know? I said, I know because I'm experiencing it, but how did you know that I experienced eight different symptoms, not just the two that are associated with this one problem? And we'll have a chance to talk about that in depth, but it was, it was eye-opening. It was absolutely eye-opening. Those, those stories often are, are the eye-openers for a lot of practitioners out there, not realizing that their, their patients are suffering from so much more than just what they've come in to see those, unfortunately, specialists slash partialists for, right? And so this is, this is wonderful because we can start to open the, the eyes of those practitioners to say, maybe there's a connecting point and that connecting point seems to very well be something within the autonomic nervous system, whether it's the vagus nerve, the sympathetics, or some overlying issue between the two of them this is where the problem lies. And here's something that we can affect in a very positive way to actually create positive changes in not just the area where the symptoms are that they're coming to see you for, but rather in almost all of the conditions and all of the challenges that they're experiencing. And we'll get into a lot of these in particular. We're going to speak to, over the next many episodes, we're going to speak to researchers. We're going to have them on as guests on our show. We're going to be speaking with practitioners who have been using tools that are uh, neuromodulation tools, uh, such as vagus nerve stimulation tools as well. And we're going to be speaking to hopefully a few patients. I think we've got a few of them lined up uh, over the next many months to talk about some of the positive changes that they expected to experience and some that they did not expect to experience. Uh, I've got a wonderful couple of stories that I'm going to be bringing up as well 
uh, from patients that have been working with me. So I think this is a wonderful time for us to kind of call it on, on this particular episode, but really this is, this is wonderful because we've been able to overview the functions of the autonomic nervous system, things that you might have overlooked if this was something that you are working with, if, if you are a practitioner that you're listening today, something that you might not have realized that there are connecting points here and that the autonomic nervous system, the vagus nerve, are a very strong and very important component of that connecting area. So JP, any, any final words before we call it an episode? No, I'm looking forward to uh, our next episode and and walking people through the variety of different conditions that have that autonomic nervous system connection, as you were talking about, that that link and, and potentially a, a way to treat patients in a way that has not been at the forefront in the past, but we hope becomes a very regular way of approaching patients and a very benign way of, of treating patients that doesn't have the toxicity issues or or side effect problems that we typically see with pharmaceutical products. And ultimately, the goal is to, to teach everyone a better way to treat themselves. 100%. I love that. I think this is a wonderful place to call it. And I think uh, for those who are listening today and uh, for those who want to share this episode, please share this with a practitioner, with somebody that you know, that you love, that needs to hear this information, to hear that there is something important out there that is connecting all of these things together. And we're going to dig in deeper into a lot of different conditions, a lot of different systems, and explain how the interplay between those systems creates these challenges and these chronic health conditions and what we can do about it. Because not only are we going to talk about why they happen, but what we can do to help improve overall function within our bodies. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you want to catch the full unedited version of this and video, you can check us out on YouTube. And we, we look forward to sharing more and more amazing research and uh, wonderful stories of optimal health with you on the Health Upgrade podcast season two. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you.